Hello, I'm Oriana Fox. Thank you for tuning in to Multiple O's, the spin-off podcast for my talk show, The O Show. The O Show is a live performance piece that mines the conventions of daytime TV talk shows for all that they're worth. It features artists and other experts who have no difficulty spilling the beans about their lives and opinions, especially when they defy norms and conventions. So if you're interested in candid confessions, non-conformity, creativity, and mental health, you've come to the right place. Hello, this is Oriana. Welcome back to Multiple O's. This is part two of my discussion with Juliet Jakes, the writer and filmmaker who I spoke with in part one about her books, Trans, a Memoir, and Variations, which has just come out. And this part of the conversation I'll be sharing with you, we discuss her film, You Will Be Free, and her relationship to masculinity and femininity and non-binary identity. So without further ado, here's the rest of the interview. And with filmmaking, I think you talked with Chris Krause um, about, like, with filmmaking, you put it out there and and you don't necessarily know if, or or you know that only a few people, like now with the internet, with platforms, you can see how many people watch it and can be very deflating. Yeah, I mean, with with filmmaking, I feel that less so because with the films I make, you know, there's a deep-seated aesthetic artistic satisfaction i mean i made a short film called you will be free that i know chris is. yes i wanted to talk about that chris is very fond of and i think it's one of my very very favorite things i've ever made and i think it probably says everything i want to say about being in the world in 10 minutes (laughs) wow um and i I said i don't talk about my my love life uh publicly and i don't um but you know that film that film was kind of a love letter and i didn't know who it was to at that point and then a couple of years later sort of someone who I fell in love with saw it and you know really kind of adored adored the film and you know it was something that we we talked about a lot um you know I won't go any further into that because we're going to talk about talk about the film but you know there, there was a way that that film was a sort of letter to somebody and I didn't know who and then you know a couple of years later I kind of found out in a really beautiful way like who it was for you know amazing um, yeah what a lovely story <laughs> <laughs> that's really nice yeah um okay yeah so that that film is is yeah i really like it um but yeah so it's about being it's about the it's about lots of things but it's about being relieved of your kind of bodily presence and but still existing and and that frees you up from any kind of economic or i don't know from from any economic pressures and like or the pressure to wear nice clothes or you know any regrets you might have or desire or addiction or whatever um like what led to that uh um when it was it was commissioned so i've been working quite yeah but it, so it was commissioned like what happened they just phoned you up and said would you like to make a film well i mean it was, it was a bit more complicated than that it was with a gallery called studio voltaire in south london um who i've ended up working with quite a lot and will continue to do so um, and they they came to me and said, Juliet, we really like your work. Um, we're working on these long term projects, lots of kind of LGBT related projects. We really like to be involved in any way that you want. So I had a meeting with uh, Joe, the director, and Laura, who um, 
worked very closely with him. And they outlined this these, these projects and they they said they had two exhibitions coming up and one was the Oscar Wilde Temple by um, McDermott and McGough where they would transform the space into this kind of shrine to Oscar Wilde, which they did with a with new wallpaper and some paintings and drawings and this incredible Oscar Wilde statue in the middle of the room. Uh, and I did a few readings there, including um, one uh, one of the stories that for variations uh, dressed in this late 19th century clothing, um, which is pretty amazing. Uh, but another exhibition was called Putty's Pudding, and this was an exhibition of works by Cookie Muller and Vittorio Scopati. Um, you may know Cookie Muller as an actress and a writer. She was in some of John Waters' films, amongst mm-hmm. others. Um, and she also wrote like short stories and a kind of very funny advice column during the kind of 70s and 80s was the height of the AIDS crisis. Uh, and in 1989, both of them died of AIDS-related illnesses. I think Scopati died six months before Cookie. And um, so they, towards the end of, of their lives, uh, Vittorio Scopati's lungs collapsed and he couldn't speak. So they communicated by Scopati drawing and Cookie annotating. And I say mm-hmm. to the drawings, just listen to myself talk, it's quite interesting that I'm using the male surname and the woman's first name. Maybe there's something in that. Um, probably. There probably is. I'm not going to analyse it. But um, so You just did. I guess I did, yeah. I mean, well, you know, I'm not going to analyse it further. Um, okay. <laughs> um, so Cookie Muller, um, after Scapati died, she spent the last six months of her life collecting these drawings and writings into an exhibition that was then shown posthumously. Um, so Studio Voltaire were putting this on and they wanted me to do some work around it and they had a budget. And Cookie Muller wrote, very late in Vittorio Scopati's life, she wrote this, these lines that become the opening lines of You Will Be Free, where she says, you know, uh, fortunately, I'm not the first person to tell you that you will never die. You simply lose your body and you won't have to worry about cellulite or cigarettes or drinking or fashionable clothes. I can't remember the exact words now. Mm. Uh, and you will be free. And so she cast death as this freedom of losing the body and saying you will still exist in the world, you know, as a kind of idea, as a memory, as as a kind of concept, I guess, after you die. You know, no one, no one truly leaves the world is, is kind of her way of consoling her dying lover and so i wanted to ruminate on that so the film opens with with that um over a blue screen with subtitles and a kind of ambient electronic piece of music by my friend jimmy billingham working as fen rain and of course this very uh, explicitly and deliberately references blue by Derek jarman yeah uh, which of course jarman made you know it's his final film he'd lost his sight he was dying of age-related illnesses uh, and it's narrated by an actress called Anna Louise Plowman. She has such an extraordinary voice and she absolutely knocks it out of the park with the narration for that film. And she's beautiful, it's absolutely incredible. I so actually, you know, just a little note on that. We recorded the voiceover together. We spent an hour together in the studio, slightly longer actually. Uh, but then after we recorded it, never spoken to her again. I don't know if she's seen the film or not. I did send it to her. I never heard back from her. Um, so it's kind of a really beautiful moment in time where we just made that film together and that's it, no more no more contact with each other. And there's something about that. But um but then the rest of the film is is, you know, the rest of the script is me ruminating on this idea in Cookie Muller and so talking about some of the political responses to the AIDS crisis and the ways in which right wing politicians 
were you know delighted by the AIDS crisis because it you know they liked who was dying right. and they used this opportunity to silence us talked earlier about section 28 and that definitely came out of the AIDS crisis indeed if you watched it's a sin on channel four recently there's that comes into the narrative quite a lot um so talking about that talking about the importance of a body actually in finding community and of having to be in the same place um and you know queer communities in the 80s you know it's very very important that people actually physically found each other and of course yeah. that's maybe changed to some extent now because of the internet, because of the internet. But, um and then ruminating on these things and then kind of talking about um this Borges short story uh in which a writer has been condemned to death and basically is granted this miracle where there's a sort of time lapse where in the final night of his life he is able to write this novel that he's always wanted to write uh that will kind of seal his legacy uh, and there's this incredible line that really stuck with me when i read it um about how you know the writer as a kind of egomaniac you know thought about all other creative individuals in terms of what they published and himself in terms of what he planned or projected and of course I read that right. in my mid-twenties when things weren't going very well and thought, oh, yeah, that's what I do too. Um, right. And then, you know, that made me think about the importance of actually getting getting things published, getting things out there. Um, and, you know, in, in the story, the miracle happens and, you know, he, he's able to write this this novel before before he's executed. Uh, and then the film loops back to the blue screen and to um, a slightly rewritten version of of the opening monologue in which I kind of conclude my thoughts on whether losing losing the body means a kind of freedom. Um, and it's very ambivalent, I think. I don't think I come down one side or the other on whether it's a good thing. But there's a line at the end of the story. I've seen the film in cinemas or galleries a few times. And it's the line of all my work. It's the one line that I kind of can't quite believe I wrote. And it actually kind of makes me cry whenever I... I see it and it sounds awful kind of crying at your own work. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, the, the line where, where the narrator says we won't have to worry about, you know, in the context of, um, of dying and losing the body, just says we won't have to worry about memories or dreams or desires or regrets. We will be free. Um, and my realisation that, you know, what I thought life is made up of is memories and dreams and desires and regrets. And the idea of losing those things is what is what death is. Uh, to me um and you know the sort of the way the narrator sort of says this as a way of kind of consoling someone who is dying uh, but of course i think probably does the exact opposite i think if i was talking to someone who was dying i would not say that to them um but it, it you know it really i just kind of watched the screen and i kind of thought i can't quite believe i wrote that um just a little note on the writing of you will be free as well um like i said i i, I think it really does say everything i want to say about life um very very concisely and i probably could have saved you a lot of reading if i told you that earlier um, <laughs> that was actually one of the first things that <laughs> i did was watch the film so um, that's good that i started with <laughs> but i wrote it i wrote it incredibly quickly and barely redrafted it so i wrote it on the way back from a football match um it's a two-hour journey from uh, from norwich to liverpool street in east london uh the season ticket holder at norwich city have been for a decade now of course haven't been uh for over a year for obvious reasons um, but I was coming back from some end of the season game, one of those seasons where you're not getting promoted, not getting relegated, nothing's really happening, sort of mid-table obscurity. Um, and none of my friends were on the train home with me, but I brought a notebook and a biro 
Um, so I wrote the script for You'll Be Free, basically, on the way home from a match. Um, and there's something about how quickly it came to me and in those sort of circumstances that I, you know, I, I really like. And it's it's another reason why I'm kind of so fond of that that film, yeah. So you write it. So, so the fact that you wrote it quickly was was what you like about it. I think so. Yeah, but also you know, there's just something quite funny that you know, coming home from from a, a football match. I can't remember which one. It was probably like a nil nil draw with like Queens Park Rangers or something. <laughs> and uh, um, you know, in those circumstances, kind of wrote what I think is is you know one of the absolute you know personally to me my absolute favorite things I've ever written. I think there's that. And there's a short story I wrote about the Dutch uh, artist Bastian Arder, which I wrote in my mid-twenties, which is similarly short, similar sort of length, 700, 800 words. And those two things are probably like my favourite things I've ever written. And both of them say so much that I want to say about the world and about culture and art and why people make art. Um, and say a lot more than I do in, in much longer projects, I think. Right. That's interesting. So, yeah, so it's about being, it's interesting that it's about like uh, what, you know, that you'll still go on. It's like a meant, meant to be comforting in this moment of facing death. But yeah, I guess it's just interesting to think about someone who's, you know, invested so much in like physical transformation and in the body to then say, to then write this thing that's comforting because you'll be rid of it finally. Yeah, I, I mean, my body's caused me a lot of trouble, you know. <laughs> um, it's not been an easy thing to look after in my 20s I was you know, before I transitioned was really obsessed with this idea of just what it would like to be an essence in the world without a body and how could you exist and you know didn't take that thinking much further because you kind of can't really without dying right um but yeah that was something that always interested me and something that I think I explored in in that film yeah yeah I guess I, I just, I was thinking about, I mean, obviously it, it's very, you know, it makes these uh, references to to AIDS and to, to politics around that and um, to Derek Jarman and it's clearly, you know, it's about people facing death that they, you know, premature death that's not of their choosing. But at the same time, I don't know, I guess I was thinking about it in terms of like, that kind of cliche that people say when, you know, after, uh, uh, like a, a disabled person dies, like, or, or, or like they think, Oh, would she have wished to have been born in a different, I don't know. It just made me, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this, but yeah, I guess there are, I guess I'm, I'm going towards like uncomfortable parallels between anti-ableism and trans politics, but Yeah. I don't know. I mean, look, going. I mean, again, something else I mentioned earlier, quotes that I'm not able to reference. And I read somewhere, my one of my very, very favourite writers is the French poet Guillaume Apollinaire. I um, was obsessed with him as a student, the volume Alcools, um, absolutely extraordinary work of poetry and calligrams, his poems about the First World War, also incredible. Um, Apollinaire got shot in the head near the end of World War One. He got trepanned. Um, he didn't die from that. He got finished off by the Spanish flu. Um, obviously, he was very weak and he's in hospital and he, he died of the flu. And I read somewhere that his dying words were, I still have so much to say. 
Um, <laughs> and he died at the age of 38, which is very close to the age I'm at now. Um, and how can you, you know, as a writer, how could you not be haunted by that? So I think when I was writing You Will Be Free, I had I had the words of Cookie Muller in, in obviously, you know, something I was ruminating on. And this idea that death was a form of liberation, I think probably a position that, you know, Cookie Muller and Vittorio Scopati had sort of had to talk themselves round to, I think probably when they both learned for the first time that they had a positive diagnosis i suspect that wasn't their immediate response to to think well this is a form of liberation uh, i don't probably think many people who uh, died of age related illnesses thought about it that way when they first got their diagnosis um but i had the words of, of cookie muller saying that on one hand and then in my head i had a polonaire on on the other um <laughs> and that kind of does speak to my kind of ambivalence but again a polonaire was a was a straight as far as we know a uh, straight kind of white man, um, interesting position as an immigrant in French society. He was Polish originally and moved around quite a lot. But 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 you know, wouldn't wouldn't have had the same thoughts about embodiment and exclusion that came from it in the same way that, you know, queer people like like Cookie and Vittorio, who I think were both bisexual, I think probably would have done. Um so they I think that's an interesting comparison as well. So just to clarify what I was thinking about, my kind of my particular understanding of that piece, which is informed by things I've been thinking about, about the relationship between the intersections between uh, trans identity and disability. And yeah, like thinking about the, this kind of cliche about disabled people, this, uh, this question of which would, would a disabled, physically disabled person wish to be born in a different body and the kind of links, the ways in which that might link up to trans identity and this cliche of being born in the wrong body, which obviously not every trans person uh, identifies with that statement, but it's certainly a kind of cliche associated with it. And as similarly, disabled people wouldn't necessarily want to be, uh, you know, to, to change their bodies. It's more the way society r- responds to or enables their bodies to participate in society. Um, so, yeah, the, the writer Eli Clare has made the, the connection, made the case for a kind of shared struggle for trans and disabled people, a kind of coalition. And yeah, that idea that non-normative identities um, are othered on the, along the basis of ability and, and queerness or transness is, is really central to crypt theory, of course, as well. But with, so th- looking at your film through the lens of like thinking about those theories and ideas, what's tricky and which you've sort of touched upon already is that this idea that you're free without your body, i.e. death, um, is once the best thing to say, you know, to someone facing a terminal illness or a death sentence, uh, you know, of whatever kind. Um, but it's also kind of would be the worst thing to say to someone who is like contemplating suicide, which is such a common um, sadly, such a common fact of of trans lives because it's like a leading killer of trans people, as you know. As you know, so I'm not quite sure what I'm asking, but yeah, if you could just speak to those kinds of thoughts, I'm yeah, that's all really interesting. Thanks. Um, of course, I I read that line of Cookie Muller's 
And it jumps out at me for its incredible sadness and for the fact that, as you suggest in your question, it's something that you could only say to somebody who is pretty near the end of a terminal illness. And it's something you, you of course, should never say to somebody who was contemplating suicide and would also be a pretty terrible thing to say to somebody who had had a difficult relationship to their body uh, for whatever reason, um, trans people included. So there are all these intersections of where it jumps out to me, not least as somebody who's had a lifetime of uh, sometimes quite severe mental health problems. Um, and really, you know, what I wanted to explore in You Will Be Free is the sadness of that statement um, and the many intersecting sadnesses that, that again, you, you bring out in your question there. Um, because, of course... Um, you won't be free, uh, really, I don't think. You know, you you are freed from a lot of the pressures of everyday life. But, uh, you know, the, the reason people put up with the pressures of everyday life that um, Cookie Muller mentions in, in the monologue at the beginning of the film is because of the beauties that come with with human society and collective joy. And, and of course, you know, the film is ruminating on the positives and negatives of that Cookie Muller statement. And whenever I see that film, and I've seen it a few times in, in galleries and cinemas when I've been present at screenings, the only thing that's ever made me cry in my own writing and when I've seen it reflected back to me, either on a page or in a film, is that line very near the end of the film where the narrator says, we won't have to worry about memories or dreams or desires or regrets. We will be free. And it's always that line that absolutely floors me and that I can't quite believe that I wrote it. Um, but that's the key to the to the whole film, really. And my attitude to the statement that I'm exploring, I think, is summed up more in that line than anywhere else. I'm quite conscious of, of time. Um... <laughs> I'm sure we could talk all day, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know we could. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to think what's the most important thing to, to ask you before we finish. Oh, yeah. So uh, yeah, maybe just to like talk a little bit about gender, um, like femininity and masculinity. You said in this text, in, in an article you wrote for The Guardian about football, um, that you, you, had, you, you knew that your fundamental transsexual impulse and your disdain for stereotypical masculine traits are separate concerns. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. What is your relationship to, to masculinity and femininity? And, yeah, I mean, that's or, a good question. I, I mean, I, I've never been able to get on very well with people who are very kind of traditionally masculine or very traditionally feminine. I've always kind of struggled with both of those poles, really. Um, and yeah, I mean, I saw that line in particular. I mean, you know, there are plenty of like cisgender men, whatever their sexual orientation who don't really feel they fit into stereotypes of masculinity and the same goes for women and femininity. Um, and a lot of people who feel like they don't fit their gender roles, you know, historically tend to be read as like gay or lesbian rather than trans, which is interesting as well. Um, so that's why I kind of made that, made that separation, you know, because there are lots of people who don't consider themselves trans and probably aren't trans who, who don't feel comfortable with, with the sort of expectations that come with the like, assigned gender. 
Um, my relationship with them, yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, you know, in terms of clothing, I've actually reached a point where most of the time I dress quite similarly to how I dressed as a teenager. Um, mm-hmm. You know, to the point of still wearing like band t-shirts every now and again, you know, uh, slightly, not even particularly different bands, actually. I mean, I think I've joined a vision t-shirt when I was 17. I've got like a section 25 one now. Uh, <laughs> slightly, a slightly more obscure answers version of the Joy Division t-shirt, basically. Um but yeah, so I actually sort of dress quite similarly a lot of the time, um, having gone through a kind of high femme phase earlier in my transition. Um, you know, partly because I make a living from writing now. You just want to wear clothes that are just like comfortable that you're not really aware of when you're when you're writing. It's, you know, it's not the same as I how I used to dress for the office, which is what I was doing earlier in my early in my transition. Um, so they're not actually things I really think about that much anymore. Um, and I just try and be me really. And, you know, I mean, I, in terms of kind of passing, you know, this old idea of like passing as a cis woman, um, I try and do that, uh, just on the street and, you know, maybe in like very brief transactions with shopkeepers or something just for reasons of sort of safety. And actually found I'm getting misgendered a lot lately, which has been quite kind of frustrating, uh, but I'm not sure what I want to do about that, if anything. But when I'm just with friends or, you know, talking to someone like you who's sort of read my work and you know, obviously quite extensively talks about being trans, I don't really find myself wanting to modify my kind of gender presentation too much um, because it's kind of exhausting. And it's, um, you know, I've, I've got myself into a position, again, you, know, you could argue this is a position of privilege, it probably is, uh, where it's not too big an issue really most Mm. of the time um so actually a lot of the time i'm not really in terms of me personally i'm not really thinking about it that much (laughs) great (laughs) but would you ever think like would you ever go start preferring they or i don't know Um, non-binary i mean it's interesting i mean i get referred to with non-binary pronouns a lot more by people lately and actually pronouns i use are she and her you know so much more kind of like binary transsexual but um i don't i don't mind um you know that's that's kind of fine if if people do that because they think it's more inclusive or they're just not sure what to do then okay fine it's preferable to getting like male pronouns um Mm. um i mean maybe if i'd been born 10 years later and grown up more with non-binary identities i think maybe maybe my identity might have been shaped slightly differently. And, you know, there are there are ways in which I do miss kind of shifting between male and female identities in a way that I did in my mid-twenties as a kind of, for me, as a route to transition. Um, but it's not it's not who I am. Um, yeah, I mean, I do see myself as, like, relatively binary, um, male to female, transsexual. But, you know, I'm not willing to jettison parts of my personality in order to hold that identity because of some sort of social expectation so you know i can still name all of the norwich team that beat Bayern munich in 1993 uh, for example well, that would be absurd to like not giving up on that, that. forget who they are why would you you know um but people sort of expected you to do things like that we sort of transitioned and you know people thought that you know you would become like a completely different person in terms of sort of interests and behavior and things it's like well no not really i mean you know your personality changes changes gradually and slowly and slightly in response to how you interact with the world and of course like transitioning 
changes your interaction with the world. I think I put it in one of my columns, transitioning kind of reset my relationship with the world to a starting point that felt right for me. Um, and I stand by that. I'm not sure how much of the, I haven't been back to the Guardian columns since I wrote the memoir and I don't think I could look at them again now. I think I find it really difficult. So I don't know how much of the Guardian stuff I would stand by, uh, but I'd definitely stand by that. And there's a reason why it sticks with me because it's still true like now, you know. And what about feminists? Like, do you identify as a feminist or is it um, just too, I mean, because it's so linked? I to... have an awkward relationship with a lot of political labels. Um, Ernst Bloch used to say, if someone asked if he was a Marxist, he would say, I'm not not a Marxist. I give the same answer if I'm asked if I'm a Marxist, but I also say I'm not not a feminist or I'm asked if I'm a feminist. I mean, right. I guess so. I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not too bothered about claiming that label for myself, really. I don't think it matters that much whether I call myself a feminist or not. It matters more what I do, I think. You know, actions are more important than identities to me, I think. And I mean, if I had to choose a label for myself, it would be socialist politically. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm read very much as being part of this sort of younger wave of of more identity-led um, you know, kind of new left people, I think. Um, and I, again, I'm kind of fine with that. If that's how people want to interpret my work, then okay. But I'm actually a lot more old left than I think maybe people let on. And of course, you know, I was a, a quite vocal supporter of, of Corbyn's Labour. And for me, that was quite an interesting meeting place between older left cultures and, and new ones. Um, and, you know, that was reflected in the Labour Manifesto in 2019, it sort of, you know, only had a couple of sentences on trans issues uh, and it was quite sort of confused as to whether it was going to support trans people or not. And it was trying to kind of walk that line um, because there were a lot of younger people uh, for whom, you know, a trans exclusionary position would have been a deal breaker. But there were obviously, you know, some largely older people for whom trans inclusion was was a deal breaker for them. Um so it was interesting being involved in that project from that perspective. But I'd very much call myself, if I had to pick a label for myself, it would be socialist. Good label. It's a, it's a good one. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I, I, I'm like, I wish I could keep talking to you, but I actually have to go pick my children up from school now. Um, but yeah, it's been really, really interesting talking to you and hearing about the, you know, your new book. And yes, yeah, I'm yes, going to read it. It's been an absolute pleasure. I thought we'd get on. Indeed, we did get on. But alas, each interview must come to an end. If you enjoyed listening to Juliet as much as I did, why not go out and buy a copy of her book of short stories, Variations, published by Influx. As I said, it just came out this week. And if you want to hear more from the author, and I don't blame you because Juliet Jakes is brilliant in both the British and American sense of the term, you can hear another interview with her on her own podcast, Sweet 212, and I'll put links to that and to where you can buy the book in the show notes. Next time on Multiple O's. Next time on Multiple O's, I'm speaking with the artist and academic Ope Lori. Her artwork addresses the politics of looking, of desire, of pleasure, and power. She's recently started her own organization, which puts her expertise around lens-based media and representational politics to work for organizations who want to improve on their efforts to be more inclusive. So 
We'll be discussing all those topical subjects and more next time with Obi Lori. Next time on Multiple O's. Oh, 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 oh. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the series, please support me via patreon.com slash Oriana Fox. And even if you don't, I'll go on accepting myself unconditionally, accepting my life and other people unconditionally as well, and I hope you do too, because we're all just fallible human beings. Oh, 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 oh,